I'm going to invite you to turn uh, to Luke chapter 18 this morning. Luke chapter 18. And, uh, oh, there we go. We'll be in verses 9 through 14. Very familiar text. And we're just going to start by reading it. Luke explains Jesus also told this parable because he's been telling a series of parables. In fact, there are 11 parables at least in the Gospel of Luke that are unique to Luke. They're not found in any of the other Gospels. And they sort of run on a particular theme. And that theme comes up in this parable. So Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He said, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted." There's a place in Jerusalem that many of you know about and some of you have visited. It's known as the Western Wall, or as the Jews call it, the Kotel, which means wall. But they they use the term to refer specifically to this wall. It's also called the Wailing Wall or the Place of Weeping, but you don't want to call it the Wailing Wall when you're in Israel because that term is offensive to some of the Jews. In in fact, maybe all of them. It, It suggests that they just come to the wall to, to cry out and to wail and, and, and so forth, which is definitely not the case. And the wall I'm talking about in the picture here is on the right-hand side. The wall is considered by the Jews to be one of those places on earth that is most sacred to them. Technically, this wall is merely a retaining wall. It was built by Herod the Great as part of his work to renovate and expand the temple in his time. This is the Herod the Great, yes, that we read about that was on the throne when Jesus Christ was born. That's that's this Herod the Great. This isn't Solomon's temple he was expanding. That temple was destroyed by the Babylonians uh, 500 years earlier. This is the second temple, the temple that was built after the, re- the Jews returned from captivity. So this temple uh, is 400-something is years old, and Herod tried to make it bigger. And the work started about 15 years before Jesus Christ was born, actually. So when Jesus says in the parable, two men went up into the temple to pray, the temple would have been up above that retaining wall to the right as you're following the picture. But today, this wall is all that's left standing of the temple that was there in Jesus' time after the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 AD. So this is a 2,000-year-old retaining wall 
that the Jews come to, some of them every day, some of them two or three times a day if they live in Jerusalem, to read the scriptures. There's little desks there that you can set Hebrew scriptures on and read them, or their chairs to sit in and to meditate, and especially to stand and pray. The men are always on one side. You see them there in the far corner in the middle of the picture, and the women are on the other side beyond the barrier, just like in the first century where you had the court of the Jews and then you had the court of the women where they were not allowed to go into the place the men went into. This is the same thing that's going on today. They are not allowed to cross the barrier to go to the other side. Uh, And they're not allowed to wear the prayer shawl. And the women are not allowed to read from the Torah at the wall the way the men are. And by the way, there's a Jewish feminist group called Women of the Wall uh, who have been protesting these policies for a number of years, by the way. And they're not just Jewish women, but there are a lot of American women that join a, they, they want to join in because it's, it's, a, it's a movement, you know. Uh, and so uh, and it's a feminist movement. So they, there's a big deal going on about this. But this is the way it is if you go there. And if, you, if you're a woman, you want to go to the wall, you can go on that side uh, and uh, you have to wear a skirt when you, you go in there. Very, it's very modest. Jerusalem's a great place to take your family because, you know, there's no advertisements that are bad or whatever. It's just a very, very moral-looking kind of place from the outside. In fact, recently, there have been many Jewish men uh, who have gathered to pray for Ukraine. And no doubt, their brothers and sisters, their Jewish brothers and sisters, are suffering there The latest census report says about 400,000 Jews are living in Ukraine. Now, as believers in Christ, we grieve over the Jewish people who have not embraced Jesus Christ, their Messiah, who came for them. Imagine going to the wall or other places, praying day after day to God as he is described in the Old Testament, but not a God who sent his son praying for deliverance, praying praying for restoration, praying for the temple to be rebuilt again, praying for their Messiah to come. In fact, that is why the Apostle Paul, one of the most brilliant celebrated Pharisees of his day, after he turned to embrace Christ Jesus, wrote, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Like I have been saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. They pray every day. But not according to knowledge, not true knowledge of the gospel. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. But if we can focus for a moment on this sacred place of prayer, I want you to imagine what it must be like to live in Jerusalem and to go to the wall day after day. When you are at the wall on a normal day, there are all kinds of different people who are there. There are Orthodox Jews and there are ultra-Orthodox Jews or Hasidic Jews who are very zealous to keep all of the ancient Jewish traditions. They're the ones who are wearing the wide brim black hats and they have the side curls. Then there are the conservative Jews. There are also the reformed Jews who say that the ancient traditions are no longer relevant and they're trying to update the Jewish practices so that they can align better with Western or non-Jewish culture. 
So in a way, Judaism has its own version of fundamentalism, hyper-fundamentalism, regular evangelicalism, broad-stream evangelicalism, and so forth. Just a mirror image of the kind of thing we have going on in Christianity in the United States. But there is another group of people clustered around this sacred Western wall on any given day. You know who those people are? They're Gentiles. And more than that, they're Gentile Christians who are all agog and mesmerized that they are actually standing in this important place, this this historical site, possibly one of the places where Jesus actually walked and stood. The Jews who are there to pray don't seem to mind. In fact, if you're a Gentile, and if you're a Gentile, you're just pretty obvious if you're there and you're not a a Jew. Uh, Those Jewish people who are praying, they don't even look at you. But I think it has to annoy some of them because we're kind of invading their turf when we're there. But I want you to think for a few moments about an observant or orthodox Jew praying at the wall. Human nature being what it is, I should say fallen human nature being what it is. Don't you think that they would be tempted to measure themselves up against everybody else around them? especially those more dedicated who pray there all the time? Do you think that any of them look down on others, other Jews who don't come and pray as faithfully? Oh, Ezra's there. He's finally shown up. You know, have you ever, maybe they think something like that. I don't know why Ezra, but I just, it's a Jewish name. Or do you think that they might think, you know, all these Gentile heathens standing here, they're gawking at what's going on, defiling this holy place. Do you think they're ever tempted to think that kind of thing? In other words, do you think that any of them are tempted to pray? God, I thank you that I am not like other men, those who are unfaithful and wicked, or even like these goyim, these Gentiles. And I'm not being critical of God's precious people, the Jews. I'm saying that we know how fallen people think because we are fallen, saved by the grace of God, but we are fallen. We struggle with pride. And not just any old pride, we struggle with religious pride. And that may be the most despicable kind of pride. Because the only reason we have a heart for God and the desire to pray and to obey the scripture and spend time in devotion to God is not because of something we have done, but because of something God has done in us through the person of Jesus Christ, through the transforming power of the gospel. So to take what God has done and given us in order to exalt and honor him and turn it into a means by which we exalt ourselves has to be especially disgraceful in God's sight. Notice in the text who's who Jesus' target audience is. This is the beginning of this text we read. We don't have to guess at this. Luke tells us straight up in verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Look at the phrase, trusted in themselves, that they were righteous. It means that they trusted that they were righteous on the basis of, that's that preposition there in the Greek language, on the basis of their own work. In other words, they were right in the sight of God, they believed, because they thought that their works, their own human works to please God had given them this high standing with God, that God liked them better. 
that he would in no way judge them because he could find no area that they had disobeyed him in respect to the Mosaic law. But notice then that not only did they believe they were righteous because of their own works, they also treated others with contempt. This is a single verb in the Greek language, to treat it with someone with contempt. It means to despise others, to count them as those who do not matter, who would make the world a better place if they just fell off the planet or never existed. Now, trusting in your own righteousness and regarding others with contempt are not random ideas that Jesus happens to pair together through this parable. Those who struggle with spiritual pride, who are puffed up about their success in keeping standards of holiness, also struggle with looking down on others. We know this intuitively. And wouldn't that make sense? I mean, if you work so hard to pull yourself up by your own spiritual bootstraps, you would be tempted to look on other people with disdain who are not doing the same thing, who are not working as hard as you are. And they should know better. In fact, this verb, to treat others with contempt, do you know where it appears in Paul's letters? It appears in Romans 14, where Paul is explaining to the church in Rome how they ought to treat one another when some of them hold a stricter standard concerning food offered to idols than they do. Probably the ones who hold the standard against food offered to idols are the Jewish believers in the congregation who have a very strong background against idolatry and the Gentile Christians in the congregation who have come from idolatry. And Paul tells them, don't you despise, don't you treat one another with contempt, it's the same Greek word as we find in Luke 18, those who hold a different standard. In fact, it is those who have the looser standard to whom Paul seems to say in particular, don't you despise others, don't hold them in contempt. So the meat eaters would say, oh, those other people, they have a hang up about certain things. We would be better off without them in the church. And the non-meat eaters would say, you know, this church is never going to be holy as long as those people with the loser standards are sticking around. Uh, Why don't they just leave? There's a lot more contemporary churches that would love to have them. I don't know if they had contemporary churches in in Corinth or wherever Paul was was ministering, but, uh, you know, it probably didn't take a lot of time uh, for that to happen. They they wanted them out at some point. They, They held them in contempt. They despised them. And so it goes. But Jesus, in this parable, addresses the sin of spiritual pride, this problem that each of us most likely at some point in some way can struggle with. In fact, if if we are taught as a child that we should obey the Scriptures and we start doing that and we start seeing that we're actually obeying what, what, what 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 we see in the Scripture, the first thing a child does is think, wow, I'm pretty good at this. Because there's not that maturity. There's not that love yet. I always tell parents, if they, if they do a really good job raising their children, most of the time, what they're going to invent, first of all, or what they're going to raise, first of all, is a legalist. <laughs> somebody who doesn't have love for somebody else, but they're really uh, prideful of the fact that they can follow the rules. Usually the firstborn, you know, sets the standard. And then they're sort of the Gestapo child, you know, that mother, do you know what your other child is doing right now? You know, and they'll, 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 they'll rat them out all the time and uh, rejoice when they get into trouble. And that's what you happens. You, you, you create this, this legalist. But, but with maturity, with, with pain that comes into their life, as, as God grows them in the faith, they, they begin to say, you know what? I'm not so good myself after all. And, and God teaches them a thing or two about their own position before him. 
In fact, I think that Luke leaves the target audience somewhat ambiguous, ambiguous on purpose. Jesus tells a story about the Pharisee. So Luke could have said he told this parable to Pharisees who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and so forth, but he doesn't describe a particular people group. He describes a particular sin. And at the end of the parable, Jesus gets very specific about what that sin is because he concludes in verse 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is about humility and justification. Jesus is targeting the sin of self-exaltation. That's what trusting in your own righteousness is. It's self-exaltation, self-promotion, self-importance. It's an expression of pride. And through the parable, Jesus admonishes us to seek true righteousness, not through prideful self-exaltation, but through humility. The two men in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector warn us that God humbles the self-righteousness but justify those, justifies those who come to him in true humility. So in the minutes we have left this morning, let's examine how Jesus masterfully weaves this parable into such a powerful lesson that it is one of his most recognized parables by anybody who has read the Gospels. I think that we can see how Jesus instructs us to seek true righteousness through humility if we slow the parable down so we can take a close look and a careful look at the two men that Jesus presents to us. I'm going to do it this way this morning. I'm going to give you a little bit of a chart. Oh, I didn't expect it to show up blue, actually. So I hope, uh, and, and uh, oh no. Well, anyway, you won't be able to see it. For some reason, it turned colors uh, when I transferred it to the church. It's supposed to be just blank and you can see the background in front of it. So there's actually writing on that chart, but I doubt you're going to be able to read it. So anyway, that means you have to listen very, very carefully, okay? I think we remember how to do that since COVID, okay? So let's, let's try this. Um, so on the one hand, Jesus presents the proud Pharisee. And on the other, he presents the humble tax collector, also known by the Latin designation publican. That's a person who gathered the public revenue. The, the Greek word is interesting. It means the end house or the, the place at the end of the road where you would collect the taxes. And we'll see how Jesus contrasts these two men by looking at their reputation, their posture in the temple, the focus of their prayer, their end goal, and whether they achieved it. So let's begin by considering their reputation. The reputation of the Pharisee is that he is faithful, biblical, devout. I'd use those three words. Faithful, biblical, devout. Now, you might not have been expecting me to use words that are so flattering to describe these people. After all, some of Jesus' most biting words are directed to the group of people in the gospel known as the Pharisees. And they're often the bad guys in the stories. But you see, not all Pharisees were bad. In fact, we know of at least two in the gospels, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who appear to be secret followers of Jesus, but who publicly identified themselves with Jesus after he was condemned and crucified, which took a lot of guts. 
You see, we do not really know much about the Pharisees. We don't historically. They appear in the Gospels, and we're left wondering, where did they come from? And we have some historical writings that direct us and some artifacts, but really actually very little. Scholarship is inconclusive on the questions of where they came from and what their nature actually was. But what we do know is that they were a very conservative group who fiercely dedicated themselves to the scriptures and they were known for their devotion to God. That's not a bad reputation. In fact, of all of the religious groups we know of that existed in the first century, the Pharisees were the most consistent with the teaching of Jesus. And that may be why Jesus was so harsh with them. They should have joined forces with him. They should have welcomed him and helped present him to the world. But their desire that many of them had for recognition and political prominence at this time in their history caused them to consider Jesus a threat rather than an asset. They, they were getting, he was getting a big following and they were losing followers. They didn't like that. They didn't like it when Paul would come to town either if you read Acts. They got upset about that. So they were jealous of his popularity among the people. He also did not appreciate the fact that uh, the Pharisees would try to force devotion upon the people in the form of external behaviors. Jesus, Jesus didn't appreciate this. Where they would try to get people to do things that were right on the outside. When truth be told, the Pharisees themselves struggled with obedience to the law. So there was a lot to criticize about the way that pride had corrupted the Pharisees as a whole, as a group at this point in their history. But their reputation was still one of faithfulness to what God had commanded and a conservative orthodox theology and great knowledge of the scriptures and a life of prayer and fasting. I, I, I would challenge you to find uh, any believer who would pray as much as some of these Pharisees would pray. In fact, in their history, the Pharisees are the ones who would stand up to the government if the king enacted policies that were anti-biblical. We learn this because of historical sources that describe what was happening with the Pharisees in the centuries leading up to the, to the, to the birth of Christ. And, and sometimes Syria had control of Israel, and sometimes Israel governed itself, and they had kings that were infected by these, these pagan nations. So when the king would adopt corrupt policies, the Sadducees which is another group that you know of, they would go along with them. They would go along with the policies. They would ingratiate themselves with the king and they would be rewarded for it with money and power and position, which is why even by the time of Jesus, when the Sadducees who ran the, uh, the Sadducees were, would be the ones who ran the temple and they ran the Sanhedrin, they were put into power by the government because they got, they got along with the government. But the Pharisees, if, they were, if the government enacted policies that opposed the scripture, they would oppose the corruption. And one time, in fact, in the first century BC, hundreds of Pharisees were even crucified in Jerusalem because they refused to disobey the word of God. These were the guys who were standing up for truth. So the reputation of the Pharisees is actually pretty good. And in fact, think about this. Jesus is relying on their good reputation when in the parable, he brings a Pharisee into the temple to pray. The parable doesn't work. It doesn't have the surprise ending that it does for his hearers. We don't have the surprise ending because we know the end of the story. But when he first told it, it didn't have the surprise ending if Jesus' audience isn't expecting the Pharisee to be the righteous person who comes out looking good at the end of the story. 
and the unrighteous person, that publican, that tax collector, to come out looking bad. That's what the audience expects. And it wouldn't work if, if the Pharisee was known as somebody who was bad. The reason this doesn't occur to most of us is because we know the ending of the story. But the Jewish audience would have thought, of course a Pharisee goes into the temple to pray. That's what Pharisees do. They're devoted to God. I wish I were like one of them. Furthermore, can I go a step further here? Maybe some of you have even thought to yourself since we read this text, I'm glad I'm not like one of those Pharisees. Anybody think that this morning? So, so the story still works on us, doesn't it? I'm glad I'm not like one of those Pharisees. I'm glad there's no pride in my life. I'm glad I never call attention to my good works or compare myself to others. When in fact, this is the very kind of thinking that leads to the sin that Jesus is warning about in this parable. Now, what is the publican's reputation by contrast? His reputation is faithless, ungodly. Those are the two words I would use. You can think of others perhaps. The tax collectors were Jews who were considered some of the worst sinners among God's people because they sold out to the Roman government for money. And selling out your people for a Jew was the same as selling out God himself, betraying God himself. That's how they thought of these tax collectors. And as you know, the nation of Israel was under Roman control. And Rome collected taxes and tolls from the people. For example, there would be these tax booths at the end of the roads, and you would have to pay a toll to use the road. Or if you brought goods and services uh, through, you would have to pay a tax on those goods and services as you moved them from one place to another. So what Rome would do is they would subcontract the duty of collecting these taxes, and they liked to use locals who knew the people really well. And they would know if somebody's getting away without paying taxes because they know who's there. And they knew the territory. And so they would hire these people uh, to, to collect taxes. And the tax collector would pay in advance the government of Rome a large sum of money to buy this position. Then they would collect the taxes to get their money back. And they would always be allowed to charge extra so that they could cover their own expenses. And there wasn't a chart to say, if you're charging this much tax, this is how much extra you get to, to charge. Rome didn't care. You could charge whatever you wanted to, to cover your expenses. So as you can imagine, tax collectors were known for open dishonesty in overcharging people to maximize their own profit margin. And they knew this was their reputation. Everybody knew they did it, but nobody, well, everybody cared about it if you weren't a tax collector, but nobody who was a tax collector cared. They had power from Rome. They're, they were a corrupt lot, and they knew it. They, were, they joked about it. They reveled in it. So you see, Jesus is contrasting two men who are in the minds of the, her, of the hearers, the most righteous and the most wicked. And don't forget about his target audience. Those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And guess what? The people in this target audience are already identifying with the Pharisee in this parable. The original hearers, they're identifying with the Pharisee, the righteous person. In their minds, the Pharisee is going to be the one that comes out the hero. I'm going to be like him. They're thinking. And at the same time, they already are despising the tax collector because he's going to be the villain. They just know it when the parable starts. 
Jesus uses this to throw the bait to them, and they are swallowing it hook, line, and sinker. But from this point on, Jesus builds the parable so that there can be this surprise twist in the end for those who are identifying with the Pharisee. So let's how Jesus, let's see how Jesus uh, builds this contrast. What about the posture of these two men? We could describe the Pharisee's posture as prominent and public and the tax collectors as remote or hidden and unpretentious. Because Jesus says that the Pharisee was standing by himself, which in itself, if you just saw this in a, in a narrative, you wouldn't think much about this statement. But in contrast to the tax collector, who was standing far off, the meaning of the Pharisee standing by himself is much clearer. The Pharisee is standing by himself in a prominent place where people can see him. It reminds us of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, remember, where he says that we're not supposed to pray like the hypocrites. He doesn't say like the Pharisees. He says like the hypocrites who like to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that, with the motivation that, they can be seen by others. This is the kind of thing most likely that's going on here. And already the pride is showing through this Pharisee. He's obviously very self-confident in the righteous things that he has done. He's not embarrassed at all to let people know about this. By contrast, the tax collector is far off. In other words, he's not confident in being there. In fact, the hearers may be thinking, what is the tax collector doing in the temple? We wouldn't expect that. He's going to pray? He's not the religious sort. That's what Jesus' hearers are thinking. And the tax collector appreciates this natural assessment and goes off into the corner. He has come to the temple to be in the presence of God, and that's all he cares about. He, he might have snuck in. He might not want anybody to see him for embarrassment. You know, body language tells us a lot. Here in the text, the tax collector won't even look up. He's ashamed at what he has done, how he has lived. How could God ever forgive him? Remember Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And when he got saved, when he came to Christ, he said, half my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken wrongfully from any man, which could be read since I've taken wrongfully from a lot of people, I restore them sevenfold. He gave away his riches because he was so overwhelmed with the grace of God in his life. And he wanted to give back and make up for the wrong that he had done. And this tax collector probably feels the same way in the story. How could God ever forgive him for everything he's done? And he beats his breast, it says, which is an involuntary reaction when you are moved to great shame or self-reproach. This is not for show. This is not for public consumption. This is between himself and God, and that's all his focus is. Now, you combine this posture with the contrast of the prayers of these two men, and this shows us their individual focus. If I can summarize, the Pharisee is focused on how he sees himself. Let's look closely at his prayer. So we're down here in verses 9 through 12, where he says, God... I thank you that I am not like other men. Literally, I thank you that I am not like the rest of the people. That's literally what it says in the Greek language. And I want to stop there for a moment. This is a sure sign of arrogance and pride right out of the gate. When we measure our righteousness or spirituality against other people, 
rather than get against the holiness of God. Because the goal when we measure ourselves against other people is to look as good as we can. That is why we are making these comparisons. We, we want to pick the worst sinners we can find to compare ourselves to. Have you ever said to yourself, yes, I know I'm failing in these areas, but you know, at least I'm not like those other people, like my neighbors or like those people I know at work. At least I'm not like them. That's not humility. That's pride. That's making excuses. Have you ever tried to help somebody with a sin problem that you see in their life, maybe after the spirit of Galatians 6? It might have been your own children as they're growing up. And they dismiss your concern by thinking of worse sins they're not committing. Well, at least I'm not robbing banks or killing people. Oh, please, mom, it's not like I'm doing drugs or joined a gang or something. Have you ever heard anything like that? That's not humility. That's arrogance. It's not a concern for sin at all. It's only a concern to look as good as possible under the circumstances or to look good enough. And you can do this no matter what you have done. You can always imagine or find a worse sinner than you are. So characteristically, look at who the Pharisee compares himself to. Extortioners. Those are swindlers. People who greedily trick people out of their money. Like today, those scams that pop up in your email or those phone calls you get from people pretending to be your bank or your insurance or the IRS and they try to trick you out of your savings. Um, oh, we want to give you something. You won this great big prize. Just send us your name and address and your bank account number and we'll make sure the money gets in there. I hope none of us ever fall for that trick. But these are despicable people who are trying to get money out of us unjustly. And then he uses the word unjust. It's a catch-all phrase that refers to people who commit great acts of wickedness. Then he mentions adulterers, someone who is unfaithful to his wife, breaking the marriage covenant by being with another woman. And the climax of this list is the tax collector, or even like this tax collector. Remember how I said that the tax collector was one of the most hated sinners in the culture? That's why he's at the top of the list. That's why he's the climax. The tax collector probably doesn't even see the Pharisee standing there. But the Pharisee sees the tax collector. He's already noted him. He's already measured himself up. Here is someone else he can use to draw a contrast. So swindlers, wicked men, those who cheat on their wives, hated tax collectors. That's a great standard, isn't it? At least I'm not like them. I, must, I, I guess I'm really holy because I'm not like those people. Any normal person is going to come out smelling like a rose when upset alongside that group. But as I said, that's the point. The goal is not true righteousness as God is righteous. The goal is just enough righteousness to make me feel good about myself, to feel justified with the bad things I've done by comparison, comparing them to the worser things, the worst things that I haven't done. And it should not go by as so the Pharisee starts out his prayer God, I thank you. Notice that? Thank you for what? For your great blessings, for your forgiveness, for your faithfulness to me, even though I stumble. I hear that prayer a lot, like on Wednesday nights when we gather in prayer. That's, that's a humble prayer by Christians. God, I know I don't have any right to be here. And thank you for your mercy despite my sin. That's how a Christian prays. That's not what the Pharisee says. He says, I thank you. And then he turns the praise to himself. He's thanking himself. 
He's not thanking God for anything. He's using a prayer to God as a platform to tout his own feeble attempt at righteousness. A righteousness that is so thin, he has to use the worst sinners of society as a measurement to get it to stand up. But the Pharisee isn't done. He continues with the righteous things that he has done. In verse 12, he says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, I don't have time to demonstrate this in the scripture this morning, but there are, these are standard practices of the Pharisees, the two things that he happens to mention here. To fast twice a week. The Pharisees fasted every Monday and every Thursday, two days after Sabbath and two days before Sabbath. And to give a tithe of everything, even the little bit of spices that you purchase at the market, this was their practice. There are certain areas where the Pharisees would go above and beyond as a badge of righteousness to assure themselves that they had done enough. But throughout his ministry, Jesus was constantly pointing, wasn't he, to the Pharisees and, and, and showing them areas of the law that they were ignoring. And above all that, they weren't loving people. They weren't showing mercy to people. Well, they were trying to live out their ideas of loving and serving God. They were overlooking some of the most basic ideas of loving and serving God. But that's what happens when your focus is on what you think of your righteousness. If you are relying on what you have done or not done, you are going to use other people. And you are going to use certain standards that you're that are going to keep you feeling good about your level of holiness, your level of godliness. And it's not going to concern you who you look down on or who you hurt or belittle or overlook just so that you can be right in your own eyes. This is the way the Pharisee was approaching God, but not so the tax collector. If the focus of the Pharisee is on how he sees himself, the focus on the, of, of the tax collector is how God sees him. And that's all that matters to him. Let's look at his prayer for a moment. First, you notice that it is remarkably shorter than the Pharisee's prayer. If you get into a big prayer group on Wednesday night and you're tempted to say, I wonder how long we're going to be here because we've got a lot of long prayers in this group and, and, and you're tempted to look at your watch. I know, I know how you think, okay. Uh, I've been there, maybe I won't tell you how recently. Uh, but, uh, you know, you're, you're thinking these kinds of things. Uh, you'd be glad to have the, the, the tax collector in your group rather than the Pharisee. The Pharisee is going to go on and on because his point is what people are thinking about him. Not that there's anything wrong with long praying, by the way, and we need more prayer, not less of it, okay? So I'm not making a comment there. But there's no pretense here. No show. No time needed for endless self-justification. The tax collector knows that he is not right before God and there's nothing that he can do about it to earn this standing. If he were to think like the Pharisee, he could say, God, I thank you that I'm not a murderer or grossly immoral. He could try to hold himself up to his own self-imposed standard, but he doesn't. His standard is the righteousness of God. And when compared to that standard, he knows how he looks. In fact, I know the ESV reads, God be merciful to me, a sinner. But the word sinner in the Greek language has the definite article before the word sinner. Literally, it reads, God, 
be merciful to me, the sinner. As far as he was concerned, of all the people he knew, he was the one who needed forgiveness. That's humility. He is the one who needed his sin blotted out. And he knows that he cannot do this on his own simply by keeping a standard of righteousness. God has to give him righteousness. In fact, just as David prayed in Psalm 51, right? When he realizes how terrible his sin is, have mercy on me, O God. This is what the, the tax collector is praying for, for mercy. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. You know what the, the theme of Psalm 51 is? At least one of the major themes of Psalm 51 is that David's sin is so bad, he's not able to get rid of it on his own. He can only get rid of it if God, God chooses to take it away from him. So he casts himself on the mercy of God and says, blot out my transgression. You wash me, God, thoroughly from my iniquity. You cleanse me from my sin. Down in verse seven, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. You wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. God has to do the work. So David says, God, if I'm gonna be cleansed from sin, you have to do the cleansing. I cannot cleanse myself. You, you have to show mercy. That's the tax collector's prayer. It's a humble casting of himself on God's mercy with an eye on God's standard, not a standard of his own making. I'll tell you what, this is, this is one of the truest tests for pride in your life, my life. When you think of your devotion toward God and your level of obedience, do you think about how good you are in comparison to someone else? Or do you thank God for the righteousness of Christ that is given to you, not because of anything you have done or anything you deserve, but because of God's mercy in your life? And do you beg for God's grace to build within you true righteousness as you struggle to yield to the working of the Holy Spirit in your life? You see, the Pharisee had the right goal, we can assume. He wanted to be right in the sight of God. Without a right standing before God, we all stand condemned, unwelcomed into his presence. You know what the tax collector's goal was? It was exactly the same. Uh, the tax collector wanted the righteousness of God. And Jesus's target audience had the same goal as well. They desired real righteousness. Sorry, I'm just trying to catch up there. They desired real righteousness, the kind that God would recognize. The question that the parable probes is how they are going to get it. It's not going to be through their own righteousness. It's going to be through a righteousness that comes from God. So in a surprise twist in the story, the man that Jesus's audience thought was the hero left unjustified. He went down to his house unjustified. He still had his own righteous standards, but all of the good works in the world cannot make us truly acceptable in the sight of God. We need the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. We need a righteousness that only God can give, and that comes through true humility. That is why between these two men, it is the hated tax collector that comes out the hero of the story. Jesus says in verse 14 that this man went down to his house justified. 
rather than the other. And then Jesus explains, and his explanation is a warning for us all. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I want you to pay attention to how the active and passive verbs work in this statement. Active verbs are used when you are doing the action. Passive verbs are used when someone is doing the action to you. If you actively lift yourself up, make yourself righteous in your own eyes or the eyes of others, you will be humbled, brought down by God. That's action against you. But if you actively humble yourself, show true humility before God, God will do to you what you were tempting, you were tempted to do to yourself. He will lift you up. And the takeaway here is live a life before God in true humility. Let him do the exalting. When you became a Christian, speaking to believers here this morning, it was only because you recognized your need for forgiveness from a holy God. You realized that you did not meet that standard of holiness, of perfect righteousness, So you reached out for a savior, someone who could free you from your sin so that you could come into God's presence. And that savior is one of a kind, Jesus Christ. There's no name under heaven given among men other than Jesus Christ, whereby we can be saved. And that savior, Jesus Christ, died and rose again for us that we we might have the righteousness from him that he wants to share with us. But now, having come to Christ in humility in the first place, Jesus would tell us, don't stop seeing yourself the way you saw yourself when you came to Christ. Be forever thankful for his grace and mercy in your life. Be aware of how needy you are and how lost you were apart from him. Your genuine love for other people and your concern for them, no matter who they are, no matter what they have done or what they are doing, will blossom when you realize you really, who you really are in the sight of God. We talk about wanting to see uh, us as a church we grow and come to unity with each other and know one another better and learn to love one another and walk with one another. That, that is a, a prayer we should have every week about Gateway Baptist Church, but that will never happen with proud people. It only happens with humble people. And it is a joy to lead a congregation where there are so many very humble people who see themselves like this. But I think every one of us, including myself, we're tempted at times to put up that veneer, to try to be something we're not really. Because we want to build up this righteousness with us so that God will like us better, we think. Or that others will respect us better. But Jesus says this is not a way to live the Christian life. Live in humility. You know, the Apostle Paul had once been a Pharisee. He was a famous Pharisee, most of you know. He could go into synagogues anywhere in the empire, and they would know who he was and welcome him. Why do you think Paul is always, always going to the synagogues and acts and, and reading and getting to teach there for a while until the Jews figured out what he was actually saying? He tells us he was a Pharisee in one of his letters, Philippians chapter 3. He lists his own standards of righteousness. And among those standards, he says, when it comes to the Jewish law, he was a Pharisee. He kept the letter of the law. And then he says, but whatever gain I had, whatever I was using for my own righteousness, 
I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss. You can take it all. You can take all my righteousnesses because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that comes from my keeping of the law and keeping the standard. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him. Do you know what else Paul says? He says this in Galatians 1.10. He says this, listen to this. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You're familiar with those words. You listen to them really carefully. If I were still trying to please man. Wait a minute, Paul. Was there a time in your life where you were trying to please man? Do you realize that there was this time in Paul's life when he was a Pharisee and probably he was living this kind of life where it mattered to him very much and as he climbed the ladder of Jewish recognition, what people thought? Probably when he was a Pharisee, probably before he met Jesus, and and likely the habit of trying to prop himself up with his own righteousness was still a temptation that clung to him for a time as he grew in the Lord. And that's where we often find ourselves as well. So we have to pray for God's mercy that we will be humble, that we'll humble ourselves before him with no pretenses, just grateful to be forgiven for so great a debt, depending on the power of Christ to walk in righteousness and eagerly and humbly coming before him because he is our God. And he wants to love us and embrace us in him as we learn what it means to really be humbly walking in his righteousness. Father, we're so...